Welcome to Jeopardites, a podcast that delivers thought-provoking ideas and meaningful debates from the iconic Z Jaipur Literature Festival. I'm your host, Laksh Datta. The session you're about to listen to is from day two of Z JLIF 2019, and it is called The Empire of Cotton, Sven Beckert in conversation with Patrick French. wonderful to be in conversation with Sven Beckert, a historian who I have long found extremely uh, interesting in print and now in person. We've just met this morning uh, for the first time. And our starting point will be this huge, monumental, well, I would say history of a commodity, but it's actually a history of global history. There's a lot of economic history in there. Uh, There are approaches towards uh, empire and slavery. Uh, And it's a book that pulls together numerous different threads Uh, like some sort of huge uh, creation in cloth. And what we're hoping to do is to speak uh, quite widely using Empire of Cotton as our start point. And then in about the last 10 or 15 minutes, it'll turn into a discussion with you, uh, the audience. So if I could start, Sven, by asking you to outline in brief for anyone in the audience who has not read Empire of Cotton, what were you trying to do in this book. Good, good, good morning. It's uh, great to be here in Jaipur, and uh, Patrick, it's great to be here on stage with you to debate Empire of Cotton. So Empire of Cotton is, uh, is, is basically maybe three things. For one, it's an effort to tell the uh, global history of cotton as it unfolded in the past 5,000 years, though it does emphasize Uh, the history of uh, cotton in the past, let's say, 300 years, from about 1700 to the year 2000, because the argument of empire of cotton is that cotton is not just an endlessly fascinating commodity, but but cotton is also quite uh, crucial to the development of capitalism. So so the second uh, reason of why I embarked upon writing this book is because looking at this commodity, looking at the history of cotton, is a way to understand important themes about the history of capitalism. Not everything about capitalism, but important things about the history of capitalism. And last but not least, uh, I'm looking at cotton because it is a way to, by looking at a commodity, I can transcend the way we usually write history, namely focusing on regional regions or cities or national histories, and instead look at history from a truly global perspective. And one thing that you mentioned is what the world might look like without cotton. Right, so uh, it, it, this is probably uh, something that doesn't need to be explained in great detail here in India, uh, but, but obviously uh, cotton is, uh, is, is not just important uh, to, uh, to human manufacturing activities. Indeed, producing cotton textiles was probably the single most important human manufacturing activity from about the year 1000 to the year 1900. Uh, but, but cotton is also really important to our daily lives. Right? So when you make coffee in the morning, you use a filter that is made out of uh, a cotton. Uh, it, at least until very recently, most banknotes with which you paid uh, were made out of cotton fiber. And then, of course, much of what you wear right now is presumably, 
especially in India, is presumably made out of cotton. So, so cotton surrounds us. Cotton is everywhere. We live with cotton every day, but most people in the world never really think about how this plentiful cotton comes about and how this has historically been uh, developed. In some ways, cotton is like the air we breathe. You know, we need it, we must have it, but we don't think very much about where it comes from. An empire of cotton is an effort to understand how this, uh, how this very large and very complicated and very complex industry came into being and what role it has played in the development of capitalism and also what role it has played in the great economic inequalities that have characterized the world in the past two or three hundred years. So if you look at the early stages of the Industrial yeah. Revolution, the importance of cotton as manufacture, the development of chattel slavery in the Americas and in the West Indies, how does that fit together with cotton as it was pre-industrial revolution? Right, so, so in a way, I'm trying to answer a great puzzle. As you know, cotton was crucial and at the very core of the unfolding of the Industrial Revolution in Europe in the late 18th and early 19th century. But as you also know, cotton was uh, rather marginal to the European economies uh, for, 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 for a very long time. Indeed, Europeans didn't really produce much in terms of cotton fabrics until the 18th century. But there's another part of the world, namely right here, which was the world leader in the production of cotton textiles for, for, for centuries or even maybe millennia, and not just for domestic consumption, but also for global trade. And, and this was happening where? In, in sort of northwest India? Or in Western India, India and Bengal, really. You know, East the, India. Yeah, this was pretty much the case all over the South Asian continent. And the puzzle is how come that Europe comes to play such an important role in uh, the global cotton industry by the 19th century, and how come that cotton is so crucial to the Industrial Revolution and thus to the great divergence and thus to the great inequalities that would characterize the world beginning in the 19th century. And the, the, the way how I'm explaining that great divergence is that, uh, that Europeans inserted themselves into the global cotton networks way before they ever played an important role in producing manufacturing cotton fabrics. And they did so by violently expanding their trade into Asia, by capturing territories in the Americas that would eventually lend themselves to the production of raw cotton for European consumption, and third, by capturing the labor on the African continent and slaving workers that would later come to uh, produce cotton for, for, for European productions. And this is all happening before the technical innovations of the Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. But when you have that being developed in close connection with the, 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 the creation of chattel slavery and this kind of new form of slavery where, uh, you know, if you go back, people were using English property law as the basis of owning another human being. That's very much bound up with what then turns into the Industrial Revolution, turns into, as you argue, the origins of global capitalism. Right. But what is happening in an Indian context at this time? Are people just going on growing cotton, trading cotton? Is it a separate story, let's say, in the, in the 17th century or the early 18th century? I mean, in some ways, it is a separate story in, in that there is a, 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 a vibrant cotton industry, growing cotton, spinning and weaving cottons, printing cottons, 
in India that is mostly catering to domestic markets, and that industry is persisting through the 17th, 18th, and 19th century. But, 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 but there's also an important uh, export component to the, to, the, to the Indian cotton industry, and in some ways, once European traders appear um, in, uh, on, on, in South Asia, uh, the, the, that demand for cotton increases, and, uh, and in a way, there's, there's, there's more export production in South Asia in the wake of, of European expansion. Into but in, in South Asia, where are people trading with pre-industrial revolution? Who is buying Indian cotton outside India or all, outside the subcontinent? All over Southeast Asia, the East Coast of Africa, the Middle East, but in, to some extent also in Europe. So there's, there's already, in, in, in the, 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 already 2,000 years ago, some cotton fabrics would move from South Asia into the, Euro, to the European continent in very small quantities, but some of them. Okay, so one of the things that you mentioned is the way yeah. that the manufacturers of Manchester in England right. are becoming a little nervous of the fact that you've got places like Charleston or like New York taking over this growing global trade in cotton. And what they request is for India to step in right. and fill the gap and produce the cotton. Right. Why does that not happen? Right, so that's a, that's a really interesting question, and, and, and basically, so so once the the the, uh, the, uh, the the industrial revolution happens in Europe in the 1780s in North America, the demand for cotton for raw cotton increases tremendously. Almost all of that cotton then comes from the just born United States, which emerges in the late 18th century, and uh, and all of that cotton is grown by enslaved labor. But this, as you mentioned, makes some of these European manufacturers nervous because they understand that slavery is not necessarily a very stable system of, of production of, of cotton. And they think, of, especially of the revolution in Saint-Domingue and modern-day Haiti, which shows that slavery as such is not particularly uh, stable. And so they are trying to envision ways of how to secure raw cotton from areas of the world in which slave labor is not dominant. And they look, they're beginning to look at the Indian subcontinent in the 18-teens and 1820s. And there are efforts by the, uh, uh, by, by the, by the Manchester cotton manufacturers uh, and also by the uh, 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 East India Company to produce more raw cotton for European markets uh, in South Asia. And uh, there is some export of raw cotton, but, but by and large, these, uh, these efforts fail. And they fail because... Uh, much of, of, of much of the Indian countryside is still outside the reach of uh, of European colonial powers, uh, and also because uh, the problem is to mobilize labor. How do you get people to work on on, on, on cotton plantations for the benefits of, of of others? And and this pretty much fails in the 1820s and 1830s. And Britain and continental Europe and the northern mills of the United States all remain dependent on slave-grown cotton for their industrial production. All right, so when you get to the, uh, the sort of, let's say, the early or middle part of the 19th century, slavery across the British Empire is in the process of being abolished. It goes through various different phases. Uh, you then get labor substitution with the beginning of the indenture system, people coming from India and uh, other parts of the world to places like uh, Fiji or uh, coming to Trinidad or, or you know, the, the shift of labor in the wake of the abolition of slavery. How, how then does India become part of that story? Who, who works the cotton plantations once slavery has been abolished? 
Right, so slavery is abolished in the United States in 1865 in the wake of the American Civil War, which lasted from 1861 to 1865. And, and with the end of slavery in, in the United States, suddenly there's great concern among cotton manufacturers all over Europe. Where is all that cotton going to come from if we can't force enslaved workers to grow it? Um, and they're looking around the world to find places where they can secure that raw cotton, and they increasingly now, or they again focus on South Asia, and especially on India. At this point, they are able to secure much larger supplies of raw cotton from the, from the uh, South Asian uh, subcontinent, because uh, the, the colonial power at, in the 1860s and 1870s has been pushed much more into the Indian hinterland, thanks to... Um, thanks to the railroads, thanks to the telegraphs, thanks to the administrative and bureaucratic structures of, of the colonial administration. Uh, and, uh, and, and they're able now to, like European cotton merchants are now able to connect to the growers of cotton in the Indian hinterland itself. So it's, it's not plantation agriculture like in the United States. It's really small-scale uh, uh, farmers, peasants who grow cotton which is then being purchased by, by, by Indian cotton merchants and then again purchased by, by European cotton merchants, uh, but without the resort of, to, to slave labor. So, so, so what is crucial here is that the, that, that the, that the ability of, 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 of European capital, of, of, of colonial states to insert themselves into the social relations in the Indian countryside, but then also in other parts of the world, such as in Egypt, uh, and then also in the southern parts of the United States has now reached such a degree that, that, that cotton can be secured without resorting to enslaving the cotton workers. Okay, so then there are, uh, there are people like Dada Bainaraji or Gandhi who uh, talk about the idea of the drain theory, which then became very influential in the later 19th century. Does the drain theory uh, make sense within economic history as an idea? And do you want to just explain uh, what it is also? Right. So, so the idea is that basically the wealth of South Asia and, and other parts colonized by, by Europeans was, was drained in order to uh, help uh, uh, Europe uh, uh, develop economically. And, 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 and yes, I think there is a lot to that idea. I think it's hard to imagine the kind of peculiar economic development of the European continent without at the same time keeping in view what Europeans did in other parts of the world and how they did drain not just the wealth but also, for example, the knowledge uh, 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 Can you give an example about the knowledge? So, for example, Europeans didn't really know how to manufacture cottons. And what did they do in order to learn how to, how to manufacture cottons? They traveled to South Asia and they observed Indian artisans uh, in, in how they produced cotton textiles. And they wrote these things down. They wrote beautiful books. They shipped them to places like Mulhouse in France. Uh, and they tried to copy these, uh, the, these, uh, the, the, these techniques, and it took them a very long time. I mean, uh, European cotton manufacturers, by the end of the 18th century, are still, uh, they, they know that the quality of their fabrics is not uh, equal to those coming out of South Asia, but eventually they, 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 do, they do succeed by the, by the late 19th century. And once the global trade really takes off and you have this sort of uh, relationship between India 
between the southern parts of the United States, other places like Egypt, which are relevant. Yeah. Uh, how does the sort of the, the global trade, the, you know, what we would now see as, let's say, global capitalism, even though at the time that phrase would not have been in use, how, how does that in, interconnect at the end of the 19th century? The, the, the global trade in... In cotton. I mean, at, at what point does it become genuinely global rather than a series of local separate operations? I think amazingly early. Okay. You know, I think it's way before the 19th century. I think already, I mean, by the 18th century, if you look at the, at the global cotton industry and especially Europe's role within that global cotton industry, it does connect the Asian continent, uh, both in terms of textile exports and the export of knowledge. Uh, it, it connects uh, to Africa uh, uh, to, and to, to North and South America and then, of course, to, to the European continent. So this is... This is already in the 18th century, in 1750. This is an amazingly globally integrated industry. And in some ways, it's no less globally integrated than if you look at you know, the manufacturing of computers today. Uh, so uh, you know, obviously, some of the details are quite different. But, but generally, this is a very global system. And I think, therefore, it can only be understood from a global perspective. I don't think you can understand let's say, European industrialization in cottons without also looking at India, without also looking at Africa, without also looking at North America. And uh, what, what, about, what is the, the significance of the U.S. civil war in your story? I know that yeah. the responses to your book in the United States tended to be very focused on slavery, very focused on the civil war, whereas obviously from India the story looks a little bit different. But why is the civil war a critical part of your story? The Civil War is so critical in the story because it is, that is the moment when slavery in the empire of cotton now pretty decisively comes to an end. Uh, and uh, it, it, what I mentioned earlier, the question is then, you know, where is all this cotton going to come from that is essential to European industry? And, uh, and then, you know, new systems of labor to produce cotton in the global countryside side do emerge. So, so this transition from slave labor to other forms of labor mobilization uh, in, in the cotton industry is, it can be dated pretty precisely to, 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 to 1865. And you can see kind of a fundamental shift in global, uh, global, global capitalism at this particular moment in time when it becomes less, much less dependent now on the uh, uh, work of uh, enslaved Africans in, in the Americas. So, uh, you know, one of the great things about writing a successful book that is uh, both a popular hit and wins prizes is that you get always a tax on the book. Uh, that's always part of the, the kind of enjoyment of the success. And the critique of your book has come from broadly left and broadly right. There's been a Marxist argument that you're actually, you know, Marx got it right and, and you got it wrong, or that uh, maybe Polanyi in, influ, influenced you rather than Marx. And then there's a, 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 an argument that comes broadly from the right, which says, well, Capitalism is about freedom. It's about individual freedom. Why are you saying it has to be bound up with slavery and with imperialism? Right. Uh, have those critiques been useful? Have they led you on to new thinking? Or did you just think, well, they, they, got, they got it wrong? I think they got it wrong. So, <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I, I still stand by, by my argument. But, but, but let me just say a few words about it, you know, why, why, this, is such a, why this is such a vibrant... Uh, Vibrant, vibrant argument. So, so on the one side, as you mentioned, there is a kind of, uh, 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 to my, you know, in, in, my, in, in my words, a slightly doctrinaire Marxist argument that, that equals the emergence of capitalism with the emergence of wage labor. And anything that, 
you know, is a system that is not dominated by wage labor, it's not really capitalism. And then, of course, there's the, uh, the other argument that you just mentioned, that, that capitalism as such equals uh, freedom, and therefore slavery cannot possibly be part of capitalism, or, or forms of coerced labor cannot possibly be part of capitalism, because clearly this is not freedom, and so it's not capitalism. Uh, but, but I think both, both of these, uh, I disagree with both of these takes, partly because I think they make a crucial mistake in, in, in starting with the certain assumptions of what capitalism is, instead of looking at how capitalism actually unfolded historically. And what my book is trying to do is not to think about the essence of capitalism or to think of capitalism in a kind of completely abstract way, but to think about capitalism historically and what I call in the book capitalism in action. How did capitalism actually unfold in the past three or 400 years? And when you look at that actual history, not the imagined history of capitalism, but the actual history of capitalism, you cannot fail but see that coercion, violence, colonialism, slavery played a crucial role in this, uh, in this history. Why do people in the West prefer not to remember that? Because it's not a nice history. And, uh, and, it's, uh, and, it's, uh, and, it, and, 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 and so... You know, it's, it's hard to deny the historical realities of slavery. I mean, we know it happened. We know it was a very important part, for example, of the United States economy until 1865. Indeed, perhaps the most important part of the American economy. But, uh, but by making the rhetorical move to say, okay, this all happened. Yes, it was terrible. Colonialism, yeah, that was terrible. But this is not really part of capitalism. This is not really part of European modernity or North American modernity. That's a way to kind of divide in a categorical way the present from this particular past. But I, I, I think this is, a, this is a huge mistake because the contemporary, the present, is not entirely but partly. The European present, the North American present, is partly a result of a long history of coercion, colonialism, violence, and enslavement. But then when, when you enter the, the period after the abolition of slavery, right. uh, after the colonial era, once you get to the 1950s, 60s, 70s, does capitalism become theoretically acceptable in a way that it was not a century earlier? I mean, for many... That's a good question. I think for many Europeans uh, and North Americans an economic system that was based on the coercion and enslavement and extreme exploitation of, of people who looked different than them was perfectly acceptable, you know? So, so they didn't see that as to be much of a problem. I mean, there were, of course, also others who very much fought for the end of slavery, for example. But as such, for many Europeans in the first half of the 19th century, this just seemed to be part of the natural order of things, right? Uh, people who lived in other parts of the world and who looked differently from them, they were, you know, made to work for the benefits of, 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 of European industry, for example. Um, but, but of course, then, as we know, uh, 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 capitalism shifts course. And as I explained earlier, the global empire of cotton, but with it also global capitalism, came to live uh, without this dependence on, uh, on, on enslaving uh, agricultural workers on, on plantations. So, so, so uh, that, you know, that, that, this is also important to keep in mind. Yes, there is in the history of capitalism, coercion, enslavement, colonialism, and all of it play a very important role. But 
this is not necessarily the essence of capitalism. Capitalism can also be based on wage labor, as it is in, in much of the world now, without the resort to enslaving the workers. So, so I mean, capitalism is constantly shifting. It, it, it takes on different forms, um, and, and it, 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 historically it unfolded, I think, in important ways by resorting, uh, connecting to these, and to enslavement, colonialism, and all of it. But, but, but it can also, in the, the present looks very different uh, than, 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 the, than the past. It's kind of, a, you know, capitalism, I mean, my argument is capitalism is undogmatic. You know, it can connect to all kinds of different things. To, to bring it back to an Indian context, do you think that Kadi and the idea that everybody should spin every day, uh, was that essentially a form of uh, propaganda, uh, an aspect of the, the propaganda of the freedom movement, or was it a serious economic plan? Uh, and, and, sorry, a, a supplementary question. What do you think today when you uh, turn up outside IG Airport in Delhi and there's a giant uh, charka outside, uh, this idea that kind of spinning in some way represents the, the soul of India? Right. That's, a, that's a great question. And, of course, you, you are much more expert in this than, than I am, so I need to be careful here what I'm going to say. But, but what I'm saying in Empire of Cotton is that, uh, and, and what you know, uh, very well is that, that 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 the history of cotton, the history of the cotton industry, plays an important role in the Indian struggle for independence, and it it it, 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 it does so for the obvious reason that that the, the cotton industry was very important to the Indian economy before colonialism, and the kind of shifting position of India within this global empire of cotton seemed to symbolize everything that was wrong with colonialism. And thus the idea to kind of return to, uh, to self-sufficiency and to return uh, to, uh, 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 to, the, to the production of cotton textiles in, in, in households with kind of simple technology uh, was, was ideologically very important to the, to the struggle for in, in independence for all the reasons that you just mentioned. On the other hand, what also has to see that the Indian independence movement does connect to the modern textile sector that does emerge in India. In, uh, in the 1890s. And, uh, and so there is a kind of, uh, you know, maybe contradiction is too strong a word, mm -hmm. but there is a kind of tension between the ideological project uh, that, that, yeah, that was symbolized by the things you just mentioned, and on the other hand, that the most uh, modern sector of the Indian economy is really to be found in the textile industry, and the textile industry does become, also in a kind of material way, important to the Indian struggle uh, for independence. And of course, the future of India was not to sit in front of the home and spin cotton on a cotton wheel, but the future of India was really much better symbolized by the modern cotton textile mills that had emerged as well. So do you want to say a little more about that, the, the textile mill owners who, at certain points in Kanti's career, funded him, helped to set up Sabamati Ashram? Uh, they are, incidentally, the, 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 the grandparents of the, uh, the people who are now in the process of creating Ahmedabad University, where I am now. I mean, it's an extraordinary story where you have this money emerging from textiles, which then goes into uh, the purchase of uh, other forms of economic success in Western India, and almost 100 years later, you find it being used for this vision of education. But what, what, what tended to happen with the, the big textile, the big, the big mill owners of the West of India, is that there came a point after independence where they were displaced by the rise of textile production in other parts of the world, particularly in East Asia. And in most cases, those mill-owning businesses, those mill-owning families, they went out, 
the mills were, were, were converted into something else, and they got swept aside by a new phase of global capitalism. Right, right. Yes, and, but, but, but they were still, as you just mentioned, they were, they were still quite important to a particular moment in the history of the development of Indian capitalism, and they actually remain quite important even after, uh, after, after, after in, in independence. And I think what, what is important here to see is, um, you know, now many people run around the world being completely puzzled by the, uh, by the economic rise of places like China or India and other parts of the world. And, uh, and, and what, what, what I would argue is that maybe this is are not so surprising because there are long traditions of, uh, of, of trade, of entrepreneurship, of, of, of capitalism uh, in, in, uh, in, in, in these parts of the world, including uh, in India. And in some ways, this is uh, perhaps symbolized by the rise of modern industry in places like Ahmedabad in the, in the, in the, in the second half of the 19th century and then in the in the 20th century, and yes, there is, you know, this is the very nature of capitalism, that it's a kind of state of constant revolution, and yeah, the, the, you know, the cotton industry is important to, right? it's a certain moment of Indian industrialization, but it's much less important, let's say, today, and in that way, India is broadly similar, let's say, to the United States or France or other parts of the world, um, but, but, uh, but I think what you can see, there is a kind of long tradition of entrepreneurship, and I think this is the way also to best understand the contemporary moment in Indian economic development. But, if, I mean, if you were to take your, your commodity cotton into yeah. the 21st yeah. century, uh, in most cases it's other places. It's not India that's manufacturing the garment. Uh, you have this situation where Bangladesh, for example, is yeah. uh, a lot more successful in its garment export. So where has the story of cotton as a global commodity ended up in the 21st century? I mean, now, now the, the, the world's most important grower of cotton, the world's, important, world's most important place where cotton is spun, and the world's most important place where cotton is woven into cloth is clearly uh, China. Uh, and uh, when it comes to the production of, of, of apparel, it's uh, Bangladesh, Vietnam, uh, but now also some parts of Africa are, are becoming really important in this story. And, and basically... Since the textile industry is such a globally integrated industry, it's, it's a kind of constant race to the bottom. It's kind of a constant search for, uh, for, 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 for cheap labor. I see. So it's, it's cheap labor plus the ability to manufacture and export easily. Right. And then partly it's preferential trade agreements that allow, let's say, Bangladesh to more easily export than some other parts of the world to, to European and North American, North American markets. So, 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 th so this industry has kind of in, it, there was a kind of whirlwind tour of this industry around the world to wherever you know labor was 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 cheaper. Uh, I think we probably have reached now the end of that because you know short of leaving planet Earth, there is no other place to go. So um, you know then that probably will have some kind of implications for the long history of capitalism that there's just nowhere else to go now. Well, there is Brexit. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for those who want to exit planet Earth. Right. <laughs> and go into a yeah. new theoretical economic realm. Right, right, um, right. right. Uh, uh, is, is empire coterminous with capitalism? I know you're now working on a history of global capitalism. Y yes and no. I think historically, oh. yes. As I mentioned earlier, if you look at the actual history of capitalism, you see that imperialism, colonialism, empire have played a very crucial role uh, for all kinds of reasons, uh, from the, as I mentioned, from the, tr from the question of the transfer of knowledge to the question of the transfer of resources. 
is empire as such an essential ingredient of capitalism? Perhaps not, uh, because uh, the, 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 the obviously global capitalism uh, 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 developed tremendously since the great age of decolonization in the mid, uh, mid, uh, mid 20, 20th century. So again, I think I'm, I'm a little, I, I, I just, I don't think it's a very fruitful way to think about capitalism by, 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 just, by just as such def the, the, the attaching, let's say, empire or slavery or something mm -hmm. to capitalism as such. I think it's much more fruitful to look at capitalism as it actually developed, as it historically developed. Of course, I'm not an economist. I'm a historian, and so I'm drawn to historical arguments. But that said, I think also on a kind of more general level, it's, it's, capitalism is, it can only be understood from a historical perspective. So, I mean, for your new book on the history of capitalism, what then would be your starting point? Where, where would you begin geographically and uh, in terms of uh, you know, where, what moment in time? Okay, it's always, uh, yeah, that's, it's always dangerous to talk about something that hasn't quite yet happened, and I, I'm generally reluctant to talk about the future, including the future of my own writing, but, but, uh, but, but I've, I've began to write kind of the early chapters in the, in the history of capitalism, and, and indeed the, the very first chapter of the book starts in Surat, in, 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 in South Asia, and, and the idea here is that if you look at the world as a whole, you see in the, in the 16th century, in the 17th century, you see many parts of the world that experience a moment of intensified trade. There are more merchants, they trade with more places, and they trade more things. Usually that story is being told, as many of you know, by looking at maybe, you know, at the city of Amsterdam or the city of Florence or maybe London and other such places. But when you look at the world as a whole, if you don't come with Eurocentric assumptions to this problem in the first place, you will see that this intensified trade is happening in many parts of the world, including one of the one of the concentrations of this intensified trade is on the South Asian continent. And so I'm beginning that story in Surat. And later, of course, I also talk, for example, about the city of Amsterdam, which I then introduce in the book as Europe's Surat, instead of the other way around, you know, Surat as the Amsterdam of South Asia. <laughs> so, so, the, so, so, so I, you know, this is, I, I mean, to, to my view, this is a word of amazing resemblances. And I, I try to emphasize these resemblances for the 15th, 16th, and 17th century, to then try to explain of why this, why this world in which uh, traders, merchants, uh, but also manufacturers in many different parts of the world who are you know, approximately, roughly doing the same thing, how does that then become a word that is so radically unequal in the 19th century, right? This, this great divergence really is fully unfolding only in the 19th century and then the 20th century. But then also trying to explain how the world is changing again today, right? Namely that when we understand, for example, merchants in South Asia or China or, or even Africa in the, in the 16th and 17th century, I think we have a much easier time than explaining why this world again is changing today. So how should global history be taught? <laughs> I... I <laughs> You know, this is a this is a good good question, and and yeah, in some way, uh, you know, a lot happened in the world in the past 500 years, and of course, it's 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 almost impossible to kind of keep keep all of this in view at the same time and teach all of that uh, at this at the same time. And uh, obviously, what most uh, of us have done is we have started to teach history or write history 
basically from a national perspective, right? We have come to grapple with particular histories of particular places. And I'm not opposed to this. I think this is a good thing, and a lot can be learned by doing this. But, uh, but as I just tried to explain, you, I, I think you cannot understand very important things about the history of the world with, by just looking at these national contexts. You need to go beyond them. You need to look at this from a global, uh, from a global perspective as, 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 as well. And ironically, though, I think one way, and this goes back to your question, of one way of doing this is by, um, by looking at history, by looking at the global from a local perspective, right? So you can look at one particular city, for example, and write the history of that city not as just a self-contained unit that can be explained out of itself, but, but as part of a network of, of, uh, of connections that, that, that go to all different parts of the world. So, so your city, for example, Ahmedabad, is, you know, for a long time is, is linked to, to Europe, to East Africa, to Southeast Asia, to many different parts of the world. So in a way, by just looking at this one place, you can potentially write a very, very, uh, very, very global history. Because, I, you know, in, interestingly, one of the, the reasons for the demand in India for a new kind of higher education is the fact that a lot of industries are being transformed so quickly by technological change. So if you, you think of cotton, you think of textiles, you think of the fact that you can have customized garments uh, coming out of one end of a machine by programming it in a particular way, all of the sort of uh, the, the financial models that underlie the textile industry of a decade ago are starting to be dispersed. Um, what what is uh, what are what are robots, if you like, going to do to the textile trade? Is the whole idea of the production of garments, uh, the picking and manufacture of cotton, is that going to be changing because of robotics in the course of the next uh, decade, few decades? You know, I'm, I'm I'm always reluctant to predict the future, and yes, that this might happen. But the fact of the matter is that there that there are estimates now that today in the world, still. 350 million people are engaged in some aspect of the world's cotton industry. Growing cotton, manufacturing cottons, that's a very large share of the world's population. So it's, it's not like that this suddenly has become an industry that nobody is, uh, is working in uh, anymore. So I'm a little suspicious of, 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 of the kind of predictions that the labor is going to disappear out of, this, out of this industry completely. But, you know, nothing is impossible. If you look at spinning today, obviously... You know, it doesn't need very many people to operate these modern spinning machines that produce a huge amount of thread. So there is a huge productivity gain uh, in, in, that, uh, in that, that industry. But, you know, in Uzbekistan, it's still children who harvest the cotton without any kind of mechanical aids. And to, to, to shift a little to the United States, which has perhaps been a, a bit neglected in this conversation so far, um, I remember being very struck in, in Mississippi when I visited there about 10, 15 years ago by the way that uh, sort of the, the legacy of cotton growing is still very visible. Uh, for example, there are very large incarceration areas, like huge prisons, really, where all of the surrounding countryside is cotton. So can you just say a little about how you go from the 19th to the 21st century physically in the context of the U.S.? Right, so, so the legacy of that history, the legacy of uh, uh, enslaved labor in the southern United States producing cotton for world markets is still very much with us. And the prisons that you just mentioned uh, is, an, is an important point because what happened after the American Civil War uh, when slavery came to an end in 1865, one 
of the ways how labor was mobilized in the American South to produce cotton for world markets was by using imprisoned labor and having prisoners work on, on, on cotton plantations. So, so there is a direct continuity from the history of enslavement to the mass incarceration of African Americans and some of them then being their labor being used for, um, for the production of, of, uh, of, uh, uh, of cotton. But, 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 you know, this is important, but I think what's more important is the fact that the vast inequalities and the deep-seated racism that comes out of the slavery history, that this legacy is still very much with us in, in the United, uh, United States. And it's with us in the sense that, uh, you know, in a kind of ideological sense of discrimination and racism and all of it, but it's also with us in the sense of the material legacy of this history, because in the fact of the matter is that African Americans for many generations worked without being paid for it and without having the ability to accumulate property or to accumulate capital. Uh, and uh, and that, that history, even though it's 150 years in the past now, 170 years in the past now, is, is still a history that is uh, having an impact on the structure of inequality in American society today. And on top of that comes all of that uh, discrimination and racism and mass incarceration that, that, that also has an impact on patterns of inequality today. So this is just to say that the history, and presumably this also applies to the history of colonialism, this history is not really over. This is not just a past. This is not just something that we should be caring about as historians, but it's very much a history that influences our contemporary politics and our contemporary patterns of inequality. And I don't think we can move beyond that history. We cannot create a word that tries to address some of these past injustices without facing this history, right? We need to first, I think, come to terms with this history and understand these patterns of, uh, of violence, coercion, exploitation, uh, uh, and discrimination, and it, in order to be able then perhaps build on those foundations a word that is quite different in the contemporary sense. Okay, so history is not even past. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Jepper Bytes. This podcast is produced by Launchora, a storytelling and creative learning platform, in partnership with Teamwork Arts, the producers of the Z Jepper Literature Festival. Ah.